Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but you can call me Mike. Today I'll be talking with Dr. Peter McGuire. Peter McGuire did his undergraduate work in history at Bard before going on to earn his doctorate in American history at Columbia University. His dissertation focused on the Nuremberg Trials and American legal history in the context of the Cold War and became his first book. Law and War, an American Story, out with Columbia University Press in 2001. In the 1990s, he went to Cambodia, where he reported on the tail end of the Civil War and the legacy of the Khmer Rouge, even helping to track down and interview some of the guards from the Tulslang or S-21 prison in Phnom Penh. In 2005, he published Facing Death in Cambodia, also with Columbia University Press, which is a a history and also a memoir of his time in Cambodia, a book that I've actually taught in an MA seminar to, with great success. Elsewhere, he has published widely on a range of subjects. His work appears in periodicals ranging from the New York Review of Books and The Diplomat to The Surfer's Journal. He has taught in a variety of institutions, including Columbia Bard and the University of North Carolina Wilmington, on topics that include human rights law, the war on drugs, and the history of surfing. Today, we'll discuss his most recent book, Tie Stick, Surfers, Scammers, and the Untold History of the Marijuana Trade. Excuse me, the Untold Story of the Marijuana Trade. Out with Columbia University Press in 2014. Tie Stick focuses on how a subculture of surfers came to specialize in smuggling potent Southeast Asian marijuana from Thailand and Laos to the United States. The story takes some surprising twists and turns with scruffy surfers and hippies making their way from the hippie trail in Afghanistan and the beaches of Bali to massive mansions in Montecito and Tahiti, but also with some of its subjects winding up in Vietnamese jails and other much less fortunate surfers spending the last days of their lives in the Khmer Rouge's S-21 prison. Listeners may remember two previous podcasts I did, one with Scott Laterman on Empire and Waves, A Political History of Surfing, and another with Chaz Smith on Surfing Plus Cocaine, a sordid history of surfing's greatest love affair. I suggest you check out these two episodes in the New Books archives. Now, Peter McGuire, welcome to New Books in History. Oh, thank you, Mike. Yeah, so I'm, I'm excited to have you on. I've been trying to get you on here for a while, but I've been, you know, it's been a, 2020 has been a crazy year. Um, right. But before we get into Tie Stick, um, or excuse me, before we get into Tie Stick, the book, um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you reveal some of this in the book, uh, but tell us how you became interested in such a wide range of topics. Well, let me just, uh, Tie Stick is a product of my work as a war crimes investigator in Cambodia. And I went there first in the end of 93, beginning in 94, to investigate tool slang prison, uh, Pol Pot's interrogation and execution center. I think approximately 20,000 went in, 20 plus, maybe 50 survived. And um, 
I was able to find some of the survivors, guards, executioners, uh, and, and, and get them to talk. And in the course of that research, I found the confessions of four Americans who were captured and killed and horribly tortured. And um, their biographies looked very much like my own. They grew up in Southern California. They were surfers, adventurers. They, you know, at least two that I can say on the record ventured into the marijuana trade and and something that I had been involved in in as as a youth in Southern California and um and were you know were horribly killed you know in in Cambodia and so I through the coconut wireless network of surfing began to investigate who were these guys and it did not take me long to find that that they were you know, almost peers and a little bit a generation, surfing generation older than me. And a surfing generation is like, what, three to five years. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, so, true, yeah. and so the name Mike Ritter, Mike Ritter, Mike Ritter kept coming up. And, uh, and so I actually was down at a, at a wonderful right point that I surfed for years uh, as a kid in Baja. And here was this guy named it's Mike. Baja, California for the, yeah. the, the non-surfers yeah. in the audience. Yeah. And so, um, so anyway, I met him and he was a bit coy and cagey. And, uh, and he started answering questions that I'd, I'd spent years trying to figure out. And then I kind of coached him on interviewing people. Um, and it turned out that Mike Ritter was heavily, you know, involved in in smuggling at that time in loading boats going off the coast of Thailand into Cambodia. Um, and so we formed this partnership and, um, over about almost a 20 year period, uh, conducted the most extensive oral history of marijuana smuggling ever done. Mm -hmm. And, and I even got Ritter, admitted into Columbia University oral history program and really taught him formally. Right. And he was but both because both of you guys did training at Columbia in oral history, right? You know, I taught oral you're not, history. You're not just gonzo gonzo no, journalist, no, no, right? No, this was very formal and uh and Ritter was a great natural historian. And so I um helped with the great Ron Greeley, one of the fathers of oral history at Columbia University, um, along with the famous Alan Nevins. Uh, you know, Columbia University invented oral history. And oral history is kind of like the, you know, the, the, the under history, the, um, you know, the, the, the Tompkins style of history. And so um, I immediately recognized it as a way to get untold stories right there's no the only archives for smuggling are are reflections of losses the police archives right, right so i right. knew there was this vast oral literature of people i knew grew up with heard of blah 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 whose stories would die when they died you know there's no archive for victories there's only archives for defeats and that's the police archive so I really empowered Ritter uh, and coached him to go get the stories of victories. And so over about a first, let's see, about a 10-year period, 
Starting he, when? Uh, let's see. It would have been about 95, 96 hmm. we met in Baja. And then he was busted in, I think, 2003. And so then, you know, we had this, I was ready to publish in 2000, yeah, 2003. But had I done it, I would have, you know, put him behind bars for much longer. So I had to sit on everything. He served about three years or, you know, was in the legal process for about three years, spent, I think, close to two. Um, and so we formed a quite a remarkable partnership in, in, this, um, in this history. And so the net result was we have the most extensive archive of smuggling history in the world. And at, at one point when he, when he was busted in the early 2000s, um, the feds confiscate the archive, correct? Oh, yeah. Good yeah. Lord. I, I can't imagine having my research project confiscated, let alone my, my friend and partner facing federal charges. But just as a researcher, I mean, what, so what did you do? Oh, it gets much better than that. So <laughs> I, um, I had, he had part of the archive. I had much of the archive and I was in Cambodia. And so I called one of my martial arts associates as you know, from the world mm -hmm. of martial arts, where it's a little bit different. And uh, I said, okay, you know, you got to go up to my office and, uh, and to my apartment and clean up my office and get everything down to my lawyer. And, uh, and what was funny was I went to my wonderful academic colleagues and associates and I said, hey, can I give you all my tapes, everything? It's about six boxes. It's a thousand hours of taped interviews right with smugglers right thousand hours dea smugglers Khmer rouge agency everything and um and they were like oh this is an important issue oh academic freedom blah 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 and then they balked and i said look i got about i got about an hour to make this decision. So if you're going to, you know, I said, I can have press there at the library. If the feds try to come and seize it, you know, we can stand up, for, you know, freedom of, uh, you know, academic expression. No way. They were like, no, we can't, we can't do this. So I got everything out of my office. Um, and, you know, we basically sat on it. And then I was uh, a person of interest because of all my travels to Cambodia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I, you know, I met with one of the prominent uh, Honolulu attorneys that whose name I won't mention that you will know. And <laughs> after one meeting, he said, um, possibly, possibly a family friend. And he seemed a little sus to me at first, you know, kind of like shoot me anyway. I don't want to make fun of him, but yeah. That the second meeting, he said, well, you know, the guys downtown, they're really good guys. They just want to talk to you. And I said, how much do I owe you? And then I got one of my glass-eating New York City attorneys I'd worked with on the Jose Padilla dirty bomber case, because mm -hmm. I work as a legal advisor in a lot of the terrorism and war crimes cases to represent me. And, uh, and then when, you know, he dove into the the U S attorney in Honolulu and, and they folded. <laughs> and yeah. So 
Uh, that that sounds reminiscent of some of the things that Alfred McCoy went through. Oh, uh, Alfred McCoy is about to publish uh, my hero, Irwin, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, like, hero. That's coming after him and so forth. Um, the greatest the greatest honor I received with Thai Stick yeah. was having it compared to the politics of heroin in Southeast Asia. The greatest book ever written on drugs. Period. You know, bar none. And and I I'm you know, proud to say that I think Ty Stick is to marijuana what his book was to heroin. Yeah. 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 No, that's an incredible book. And that is an honor. Um, so what was in it for Mike Ritter and what's in it for, what was in it for some of the um, smugglers or the correct terminology is scammers that you interviewed? I mean, why, well, why, I think why would they cop to this history? I think you probably understand this on some level is that if you spend an entire career in this weird clandestine world where you can't talk to anyone about who you are, what you do, anything that, and it was the same with the Khmer Rouge guys, that when you get an honest interlocutor who asks you honest questions they crack like fucking walnuts and they and they spill and they all did and um yeah and they want to talk and at first you know there's this you know kabuki theater dance to get the interview and this and that i mean you know ritter did interviews you know i mean we were in ritter was in you know cambodia thailand laos um Africa, let's see, South Africa, you know, I was in Europe, America, California, Baja. I mean, we went all over and, and, you know, there was always a ritual dance before the interview. But once we got the interview, the people just did poured out because they'd been keeping secrets their entire lives. And they're proud of this now. I mean, marijuana is legal. These are the Johnny fucking apple seeds of the marijuana world and they deserve credit and respect instead of the, you know, these dipshit, uh, you know, fucking hedge fund guys. Sorry. I mean, these shucks. New books, we have new book standards here. Come on. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, yeah. So, so, you know, once you crack the nut, the, it, it all begins to yeah, flow. Yeah. So, so you, I mean, at, so let me to get the chronology straight uh, for the research. At the same time that you're doing the interviews with these former Khmer Rouge characters in Cambodia, you're also jetting off to go interview these former um, drug smugglers at the same time in your, your career? Yeah, I mean, Ritter really did a lot of the heavy lifting, but <laughs> it was funny was just the whole overlap of it was that I'm trying to find the Khmer Rouge naval guys who captured these American smugglers on their, on their sailboats and, and some beautiful sailboats. Um, and I'm, you know, crossing over the Mayaguez incident. I'm crossing. So it all, my research begins to kind of overlap. And I'm like, man, I got this amazing story on the Mayaguez. Uh, let me run with that. Oh, I got the, you know, so as you know, as a researcher, the, the, the story you're looking for is rarely the best story. Right, and the, right. the ones that fall on your lap are, are often the best ones. And so, um, yeah, and so it, it kind of was all, you know, interfolded. And so the guys who captured the boats 
were the same guys who were involved in the Mayaguez incident. Mm. And, um, and then, you know, the tool slang guards and all that, they remembered the white guys. There weren't that many of them. There were Frenchmen and Australians and others, mm. but um, sadly they remembered some of the Americans because they were singing songs in the prison at night. The, the American prisoners were singing at night? Yeah. Just trying to keep their morale up or keep saying, or yeah, just horrifyingly oh, sad. Boy. And what, um, uh, remind us of the the time when they're arrested. It's really late in the Khmer Rouge regime. Oh, yeah. Well, there's two sets, yeah. Uh, two get captured about 77, okay, um, earlier, yeah, and then they're you know interrogated, tortured, and killed typically with a you know, um, ox guard axle strike to the back of the neck to break your neck and then buried at Chung Ek, as you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, but this second batch, um, Michael Scott Deeds and Krista Lance, they were caught very late. And so they were among the last prisoners um, executed at Tool Slang. And not only that, they were, you know, burned alive with... Um, you know, a pyre uh, of tires and gasoline oh, because um, uh, Brother Duke, the Khmer Rouge, you know, commander of Tool Slang Prison, one of the people tried in the UN court, um, he confesses to all this in court and says mm-hmm. that he was ordered from the high. These guys, no evidence can exist of them. Let's, you know, burn them. I don't want any remains. So, and, th- and this is November of 78. So might even been December off the top of my head. I can't remember. I mean, so we're, we're literally weeks from the Vietnamese rolling yeah. in, overthrowing the Khmer Rouge regime. Yeah. Yeah. Like it was that close. Yeah. Among the last prisoners. Ugh. Yeah. Just, I mean, yeah. just the layers of. Yeah. Horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let, let's back up a little bit. Um, so previously I've interviewed Chaz Smith on his book on surfing and cocaine. Um, and one of the things he talks about is the the connection between surf culture and drug culture. And you do a really great job on this um, linking, you know, um, Southern California and Hawaii and then the, the Southeast Asian, uh, particularly Bali drug culture. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? And, and I'm really interested and I think readers would be really interested in the Brotherhood of Eternal Love out of Long Beach, who are these amazing characters. Yeah, the Brotherhood story has been told many times, but it is, is really interesting. And this is um, a utopian group that I would compare to the Shakers, the Mormons uh, within American history. I mean, it, it truly is unique. Um, they're originally kind of like what used to be called greasers in California parlance of car club guys from Anaheim. And at the time they were growing up, it was the fastest growing city in America. And, and they were kind of thugs and they heard about this drug LSD. And there were these guys in the Hollywood Hills that had it. And they, um, went to their, you know, stuck up their party uh, thanks to Timothy Leary's son told them, oh yeah, these LSD guys are having a party. 
And so they went and they stole their LSD. They drove out into the desert by like Palm Springs, had a huge trip and then like threw their guns out in the desert and became, you know, radical peaceniks and, and real messianic LSD believers. And it needs to be mentioned that this is in the days of Sandoz LSD and like pharmaceutical LSD, which is a very different product than the like speedy weird LSD, you know, bathroom batches that come later. And, um, you know, they have a leader named John Griggs and uh, they eventually set themselves up as a nonprofit, a church that uses LSD as a sacrament. And this all occurs before LSD is illegal. And then it becomes illegal. They become, you know, kind of a, a target for the FBI and police and this and that. But they also set up one of the most kind of extensive smuggling networks that kind of sets the tone and creates the model for the surfer surfer scammer and that is they send people to Afghanistan to you know get a Volkswagen bus pack secret compartments full of hash drive it to Pakistan drive it to other ports ship it back to the United States so in short order the the brotherhood becomes one of the most powerful network marketing forces in in the soft drug trade. And mm-hmm. then they decide to get into the LSD trade. They make Orange Sunshine, which kind of has mixed results. Some people don't like it. Some people do. But um, they pay the uh, Weather Underground to spring Timothy Leary out of Long Paul Prison. And so they're formidable. And there's a very remarkable character who's still with us and kicking named Travis Ashbrook, who was a pioneer surfer and someone you definitely should have on your show to talk to about the Brotherhood because he was there and is the real deal. Gary Chapman, Al's brother, Mm -hmm. um, he dealt with them. But for the uninitiated, Al Chapman is a very famous surfer also. Uh, David Nuhiva, uh, Hawaiian champion, is part of the... the They all danced around the edges. But but Gary Chapman, Chappie, was a real real deal player. He moved a lot of weight. Lebanon, all that, you mm-hmm. know, and there were plenty of surfers who did. I mean, uh, Jeff Hackman, one of the greatest uh, surfers of the 70s, misses the Duke at, at Sunset Beach because he's in Thailand, you know, putting together a bad load of, uh, of Thai with uh, Buddy Boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, so um, tell us a bit about the hippie trail and the um, significance yeah. of Afghanistan for the, uh, yeah. this early moment in the, in, the, uh, in the drug culture and also in, in drug smuggling. Yeah, the hippie trail is, is basically the, the silk road of cannabis and, and that people follow it, you know, throughout you go from Europe and then you know, it has a few different paths and it continues to, to extend, but the ultimate destinations in the hippie trail are Afghanistan, um, Nepal. And then as those theaters begin to clamp down by law enforcement, they push out into Thailand, they push out into, um, you know, actually first India and then 
Thailand and and really Bali is kind of a hub because the scammers can can move product from um, Thailand to Bali pretty easily. Yeah, and and scammer uh, for those who haven't read the book yet, scammer is the the slang term at the time for marijuana smuggler. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it's it's I mean, it, has, yeah, it can it can have a different connotation, right? Like, you know, oh yeah, you know, and and the thing is, is that you know whatever they did in their daily lives, these guys per pretty much confined their professional activities to marijuana. Yeah, and there that, were always really and, interesting always opportunities where where you know you'd buy you know as the thing moves into more serious times, you buy ten tons from you know, a golden triangle triad guy, and he's going to walk up to you with a Halliburton suitcase and pop it open. And there's going to be five kilos of China white. And he's going to go, Oh, this is much more than your boat. Like put this on your boat because it's worth much more than the, you know, the marijuana on board. And they'd say, no, no, uh, we don't, we don't do that. So there was a separation, even though some of the smugglers became addicted did the harder drugs, this and that. There's no kind of whitewashing that. Um, but nonetheless, uh, they confined their professional smuggling activities mostly to marijuana. Yeah, so there, there, was, there was an ethos and a code of conduct and they, yeah. they were focused on marijuana and uh, not getting into heroin or cocaine smuggling. Uh, well, some did, I mean, but they were a separate entity. But, you know, yeah. uh, heroin was equals death. And that yeah. was always, you know, and, and look, Rick Rasmussen. I mean, we have plenty of, um, of, of sad stories of heroin and surfing. So it's not like there was this clear dividing line, but mm -hmm. with the people involved in the trade there, there was a clear dividing line. Yeah. And, and so what, what is, what is tie stick and what, what impact did it have on the American drug scene when the, when the first tie stick began to arrive in California? Well, tie sticks were this incredibly strong cannabis sativa, which is the, you know, the very tall, more spindly plant that'll grow up to 15 feet grown um, in what's called Isan, which is mm -hmm. the border region between Thailand and Laos. And, um, and based on our research, we believe that it was the hill tribes, you know, were the master growers. And um, the market really developed around the Vietnam War and American Air Force bases. And so, you know, they would take these, you know, seedless cannabis sativa buds and tie them to saute sticks or even hemp sticks, wrap uh, uh, threads around them. Um, and, you know, it, was, it, it cost the GIs nothing. And they would trade with the ties for, you know, bottles of PX, vodka, or whatever, cigarettes. And then the ties got smart as to what the Americans were selling it for. And they were selling it for, by the early 70s, 71, 72, you know, wholesale, $1,000 a pound. What, they, what were they buying it for in, in Thailand and Laos? Maybe three fifty cents to five dollars a kilo. Okay. <laughs> Go yeah. through those numbers one more time because that is really amazing. 
Yeah. So they're, yeah. they're buying it for what? It depends where, who, yeah. how, and what, but 50 cents to $5 a kilo. And then selling it for? Uh, two to $4,000 a kilo. I mean, this this blows the Dutch East Indies company out of the water here. I mean, right. this is so this is an incredible it, return on investment. Exactly. So it's it's one trip, one boat, and you're a millionaire. Yeah. And how how does that profit margin compare with um, weed coming in from Mexico or Pakololo from Hawaii? Yeah, yeah. No, Hawaii's later because yeah. what's funny is Hawaii is a lot of Thai hybrid. Mm. You know, because Hawaii is a major hub mm-hmm. in the Thai trade because of where it mm-hmm. exists geographically. And then um, the military connection. And oh, yeah. All of that. And, you know. But just the, the profit margin on like smuggling from uh, from Mexico. It's like $200 a pound. Or, I so, mean, it's absurd. Yeah. It's, it's one custom guy calls it the Cuban cigar, the marijuana trade. Yeah. So it's, and, it's more potent for the consumer. Oh, and yeah. dramatically more uh, profit yeah, for the yeah. trafficker. And it's pre-sold and it doesn't ever hit the streets. It's, ah. it's like the, you know, basically at that point in history, if you were the brotherhood, you were a big player in this, you would go to the hell's angels and, and especially like in California and, and it'd all be pre-sold and it would go to the bands. It would go to the kind of hippie royalty. And, and it was a limited commodity. It wasn't like back then you could not get, you know, five tons. You know, you got, if 500 pounds got in, woof, it would be bought sight unseen. Right. So right. that was what, what was interesting. One of the biggest smugglers we interviewed, uh, he said, yeah, somebody called me. He said, yeah, you know, and this is like 1970, thousand bucks a pound. And he said, fuck you. He said, I'll be right over. And he smoked one joint of it and said, I'll buy it all. And yeah. he went on to become a huge Thai smuggler, a, a Hollister Ranch guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, this book is really tied to Southeast Asia. Yeah. With the uh, the weed coming out of um, Laos and and Thailand, Isan, um, and then also the Bali connection. Can you tell us? You mentioned this before, but tell us a bit more about the Bali connection. How Indonesia yeah. factors into this, and then this this makes yeah. the connection with the surfers and why this is a book sure. about surfers um, who are smugglers. Yeah. So the Bali connection's interesting in that um, you know Afghanistan starts to pinch in about 70, 71. Kissinger and Nixon get involved and say, you fucking better get this drug hippie scumbag. Sh- I mean, sorry, these darn drug guys cut out. And, uh, and the Afghan government really has no choice. And so they do. So they begin to pinch on drugs and hashish and drugs that are not, that are traditional. You know, nobody makes better hash in the world than the Afghans, especially mm-hmm. in the Balk, Mazar Sharif area, and, and the Brotherhood had been smuggling it for years. But with the weight of that, they, um, you know, they migrate down south and, you know, first India. But Bali is such an attraction because there's great waves. And most of these guys are surfers and they're, you know, they're like, you know, they've been in India and Nepal, all these places for like two or three years away from the waves. And then they're here like, wow, you know, 
Bali, there's epic surf and there's all this Afghan hash. And so initially those guys are smuggling Afghan hash to Bali, making oil, cooking it down or going from Bali to Afghanistan and making it and smuggling it. But so that's the axis. And then suddenly the Thai sticks emerge and that's much easier. So they can go to Thailand, they can move it back to Bali, and then they can take it from Bali to Northwest Australia, which was the easiest route. So the, the you know, a lot of the first loads are coming into North, Northwest Australia. And, and, and this um, is the era where they're, they're doing things like hollowing out surfboards and yeah. filling it full of resin or, exactly. or, or, or mostly like, yeah, put it in a hull of a boat, mm-hmm. put it in, call it out wind surfers, not big, maybe 500,000 pounds tops. And boy, does it escalate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the, you know, the, and we've touched on this already, but the, the American war in Vietnam, you know, the, the second Indochina war factors yeah. so big into this narrative. Oh yeah. You know, the GIs becoming consumers, then the disruptions to the Southeast Asian economy and political system. Um, could you say a few words on that? Well, you know what, it's funny because, you know, even in the mid sixties, the New York Times is writing about the American soldiers, you know, appetite for marijuana. And the Vietnamese are very quick to pick up on this. And so it's, you know, they cater to it and, and the American soldiers love to smoke pot. And um, it's not until about 70 that it gets, you know, two things. It's a usual Pyrrhic victory in the war on drugs that we've seen a million times where, um, you know, the U.S. military squeezes on marijuana because it's so easy to bust people for smoking pot and everything else. And, um, and then it's replaced with fucking, Ch- I mean, with China white heroin. And, uh, and that's what's staggering is that once the U.S. military clamps down on marijuana, the Vietnamese replace it with China white. And yeah. so these guys are, 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 you know, these guys who have never smoked marijuana in their lives, like farm boys are getting like hits of, you know, hundred percent pure China white in the end of a cigarette. And that's when the heroin epidemic basically cripples U S military. And is a significant reason why the U S bailed out of Vietnam. Yeah, um, we see this story time and time again in the war on drugs. And I'm from yeah. Honolulu and I remember Operation Green Harvest, the marijuana oh, eradication yeah. after a couple of years of that. And it was pretty darn successful. Uh, yeah. Marijuana was suddenly really tough to get. And then all of a sudden people started smoking uh, ice, crystal, uh, crystal yeah. meth. And we had yeah. a much, much more serious problem with that than Pakalolo ever was. Oh yeah. And what, it, yeah, but they, yeah, they, what they call it? Shabu? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And no, it was frightening. And that, you know, that, that is a devastating drug that you'd never recover from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and when I lived in Moklaia, I mean, we had the, you know, the, the walking wounded staggering over down the Farrington highway yeah. and yeah. they were scary. I mean, yeah. it was a very scary time. Yeah. Well, you know, another link to the, the second Indochina war is, um, the way in which uh, 
you know, the, the, the American war leads to the, the rise of the Khmer Rouge through the American bombing and then their takeover in 1975. And then this factors into the book. Um, previous, you already talked about the, um, the guys that wound up in uh, Tool Slang and in the Khmer Rouge custody. But I, I didn't know this until I read this book, but there are Americans that wind up in Vietnamese jails after, oh, the, yeah. um, after the American uh, yeah. war is over and after you know, the Vietnam is united in 75. So could you tell us a bit about that story? How, how did these super guys wind up in a, in a Vietnamese yeah. jail? Oh, yeah. A number of American marijuana smugglers uh, get busted by the Vietnamese. And how, how, how do they get busted? They're, they're not in Vietnam, are they? No, but those territorial waters are are very are heavily contested at that point. So they're on they're on boats and they're yeah they're, and they're in un, unclear waters. Yeah, and the thing war. is, yeah, and and you know, like the the Maiguez incident is ro- largely tipped off because those islands the Vietnamese are sort of. Are, are wanting. And so the Khmer Rouge and the Vietnamese have significant patrols trying to, you know, maintain control of their, what they believe their regional spaces are. And so one of our boats gets blown off course and, you know, next thing he knows, he's getting, you know, surrounded by PT-109 boats and he's on his way, uh, you know, to a a prison near Hanoi and spends almost two years there. And, and what, uh, what year is this? 79, 80. Yeah. yeah. And then he's saying, Hey, I'm just an American. I'm a surfer. And they're like, well, why do you have scuba tanks, a Nikonis camera, a telephoto lens? Like you're fucking CIA guys, you're spies. Fuck you. I mean, shucks you. And, uh, and, and, and so, you know, I mean, and then what's funny in the end is that the Vietnamese realize, like, no, this guy's a fisherman. <laughs> and then his guards begin to sympathize with him, and they realize they really have nobody. Yeah. And, uh, and they show up one day, and they're like, okay, you're going to Thailand. And they give him a plane ticket to Thailand, give him his passport back. And, you know, two years later, he shows up in Thailand without a penny, and calls up his friends in Santa Barbara, says, I'm alive, I'm alive. And they're like, who? No, no, he drowned a long time ago. We disappeared. And so, um, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, the Vietnamese, you know, they play much, in a funny way, they play much harder ball than the Cambodians. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, ironically, this is a guy who's opposed to the war and so many of the drug drug runners are are anti-war folks uh, who, you know, the Vietnamese actually have political common cause with if uh, you kind of follow that logic. But the um, just a, a little more on the uh, the American war in Vietnam. I and mean, there's a large number of American vets that get involved in this trade, right? After yeah, oh, yeah. Experience, yeah. say a few words on them. And some of them wind up in, in Bali and in various places. Yeah, I mean, um, certainly, you know, all sorts. Well, you know, a lot of the trade begins through the Army Post Office. Because the Army Post Office is the U.S. Post Office in Asia. So if you and I are GIs, we can go down there and anything under 50 pounds isn't checked. It's nothing. So we can send 50 pounds of tie sticks home, whatever. 
So you had that kind of smuggling going on initially. Um, but then of course it grows and, um, but the trade really does grow out of the Vietnam war and the army post office. I mean, that's where, you know, Americans get a taste for, for the strong Thai marijuana. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I think, um, you know, then after the war, a lot of those veterans, many of them go back to the United States and see that I have no place in this society. And then they go back to Asia. And, and some in the intelligence community have these remarkable connections in Isan with the Kamnan, the, you know, the provincial leaders and things like that. And so easy day. So then they begin providing kind of brokerage services for larger loads and stuff like that. But what's interesting is when they get busted, unlike the surfer scammers, they find a very easy birth and harbor with law enforcement, where law enforcement says, oh, you got a little mixed up. I know the war was hard. You just talk to us a little bit and we'll make everything right. And so those guys tended to flip very easily. Um, and we see these kind of culture d divisions. Mm, and the surfer scammers um, hold true to like, you know, the code of Omerta, right? Code, code of silence. Um, and Yeah, some did, some didn't. And, yeah. and it gets so harsh once the Reagan era war on drugs laws come in that you know, it's kind of like, oh, you bought your mom a house. Well, she's your co-conspirator. Mm -hmm. So we're taking her house. We're indicting her. We're indicting your wife and your children are going into foster care. Right. So in, in terms of legal history, this is all the fallout from RICO and um, the, the other, the other legislation that like focuses on conspiracy. Yeah, like 88, yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. 88, 89, like the game changes. And it, and it really, as you said, you know, the conspiracy laws get really broadened. And so, um, you know, so, you know, you're an accessory co-conspirator, you're facing a horrific amount of time. And, and you know, and there, there are some who turn on everyone. Um, there's a remarkable smuggler named Brian Daniels who gets busted with something unbelievable like 72 tons on a um you know oil rig supply vessel captained by a former green beret and everybody testifies against him he refuses to testify against anybody and you know he does 23 years oh yeah and his co-conspirators you know who are caught red-handed with 72 tons do two years in club fed mm. and then are back in the field doing agency uh mop-up work as it were <laughs> mm -hmm. so so when, when is when is the high point in this story of in terms of the smuggling and there's a there's a shift to using boats and uh yachts yeah. and and uh, commercial fishing boats and a variety oh, yeah. of things so just chronologically when when does this sort of When's the, the golden age of, of Thai 80s, smuggling? early 80s. Early and, 80s. And they, you know, the kind of apogee is 88 is when this boat, the Encounter Bay, gets busted. Mm -hmm. And that, 
more or less, it takes two years, three years, but that's when the trade collapses. Yeah. But well, 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 could you walk us through what, um, what one, what was involved in one of these um, smuggling missions? Like where, where does yeah. the boat come from? Where does the crew oh, come yeah. from? What are they? Well, what do they do? my co-author, let's just start with him. Yeah. So he would get a load in Isan up by the Laotian border. Then he would have to get that load all the way to the coast. And that itself was a mission, right? Mm -hmm. Checkpoints, bribes, all that stuff. And he's so, using a, a local a local counterpart, a comprador, a, a handler, right? And you, yeah, yeah. You, you identify a couple of key, key figures. I mean, there, there aren't that many, right? And there's one yeah. guy who's kind of doing it for everyone. Yeah, there's a few. Every It's kind of... It's funny, and it, it reminded me of like when we were doing Khmer Rouge research, is that you would find the fixer that kind of melded with you, like the guy that you got along with, and maybe he wasn't the best, maybe he wasn't the worst, but for whatever reason, you, you guys kind of could work together. And so uh, my co-authors were, you know, his guys were Lek and Joe, and um and they would procure the load, they would get it packaged, they would do the whole shebang, and then they would have to get it from the top, top of Thailand all the way to the coast. And then he would get it um, to a pirate near Trot. Yeah, I've been to Trot. That's, right on that's the down on the uh, a port down on the, uh, the Thai coast near Cambodia, right? Yeah. Yep. And he would be smuggling cigarettes, diesel fuel, batteries, whatever it was. Like this is any, a local local Thai pirate. Oh yeah, yep. and uh, and a good one. And um, and then he'd say, "Okay, I got five or ten tons coming, whatever, big weight." And then he would organize a Thai fishing trawler, the traditional big boats, load bearing boats, and that are throughout the Gulf. And then uh, Mike Ritter, my co-author would get on board with the travel log spinner and um, co-captain it out the Gulf of Thailand into inter international waters and oversee the transfer to the boat that was going to take it trans-Pacific. So, and then, you know, and then that boat would take the load all the way, usually off into California Oregon, Washington, Alaska, and over time the destinations um, changed. Right, and but, you know, for for folks who haven't spent much time in boats or spent much time navigating <laughs> the Pacific, um, you, it's not just a straight shot from Southeast Asia to LA, right? Where where do you go? You go you go north, right? You have to do the yeah. Great Circle Route, and you go far far north up past Japan, along the Alaskan coast, and then come back down, right? And this is the old. Yeah. Spanish galleons, uh, oh, yeah, and get horrific weather and seas. I mean, beyond you know, beyond what most people can imagine. So, you're going from this boat's going from the beautiful Gulf of Thailand and tropical waters up into the you know, the, the terrifying North Pacific. And some of your description of the storms, it just, I mean, I, I grew up on boats and it just, oh, yeah. <laughs> just nightmare scenario. Well, the, my favorite guy in our whole story is a guy named Mike Carter, who was an ab diver. And he captained the ancient, the quote, ancient mariner in about 76. That was one of the biggest, significant, like perfect tie loads. 
And, um, you know, and they had waves breaking over their crow's nests in the North Pacific, lost all power, blew out the windows on one side of the ship, and, um, you know, almost lost the ship, but managed to pull it off. And I think, you know, netted something 20 million US, you know, 20 million cash in 1976. So when these, when these boats go on this incredible journey from Southeast Asia up, up, up near Alaska and then come start coming down the coast of the Pacific Northwest, they just sail right into the port in Seattle and load or right into San Francisco never. or LA Harbor? No, never. What do they do? Oh. Tell us so they do. the encounter Bay, um, let's see. I mean, they had the, the most successful guys brought it straight in, over the beach, breaking waves in Zodiacs. Um, yeah. It Zodiacs was, being small, inflatable. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, boats, you know, with, you know. Yeah, and even ducks and the, you know, the amphibious troop car- carriers. And so there, you know, was one organization that had these, you know, ducks that you could put. I mean, these are, that's, that's like the, the D-Day landing kind of vehicle, exactly. right? You know, and, oh, yeah. And the, the, the Pacific Theater, right? I mean, yeah. These amphibious vehicles that they just running. Yeah. I mean, that, and so, that's, a, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And not only that, they filled the duck up and it drove down 101 to their safe house. <laughs> and they had radios on both ends. But, you know, this is serious trade craft. And um, that impressed even the, you know, the FBI, the police. And there were tangential spec ops military guys involved who had the trade craft. Yeah. I mean, you know, Coronado Company, one of the big early smuggling organizations, was in Coronado, the home of the Navy SEALs. So Mm -hmm. these worlds begin to collide at a certain point. That's, that's also where my dad's from. <laughs> I've got, I know Coronado very well. And, yeah. and I think, uh, yeah, if my dad was still around, he might have a couple stories for this conversation, but <laughs> he is somewhere else. Um, well, uh, just, and just, we need to wrap up, but um, I, mean, I, I could hear, listen to these stories forever and, and listeners, um, you know, pick up this book. I mean, your, your writing in this is fantastic. I mean, it's no, we're just, just so we're engaging. We're going to do it again. And I yeah. want your listeners to weigh in with questions. That's the most fun. Yeah. 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 But, um, so, but, but now that weed is legal in California and yeah. in so many states, and what, just a few days ago, the U.S. House of Representatives yeah. passed a bill calling for decriminalization and, of course, five percent tax on on marijuana um how does this impact your thinking about these uh, so-called scammers and their their various fates um i mean you know again i think they deserve great respect and and all of us who took penitentiary risks way back when um i mean i you know i don't want to meddle and i know my co-author doesn't want to meddle and he did much more heavy lifting than i did but um it is kind of funny the modern pot world it seems like it's you know it's kind of it's very sciencey to me you know and the guys are very ah oh, this has this many trichomes or whatever and you're of my generation and you're a surfer and you're a fighter and you know, we were men of action. And so, 
I feel like the men of action have been replaced by men of science. <laughs> and I just, and they'll start talking to me and they're the sweetest guys you'll ever meet. But I don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Like, well, this level, I mean, this, you know, level of THC and this level of cannabinoids and that, I don't speak that language, you know? And, you know, back way back when it was summertime Thai. And when that ran out, there was quote mumbo. And then fall was quote purple seedless, which was indica. And that was, that was marijuana in California up until the probably late eighties, you know, it was seasonal. Yeah. 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 Very much so. What's funny is that, and you go and there's a bud tender and this and you're like, that's not a sativa. Come on. A sativa is a funny, you know, fruity spindly thing like, you know, Kawhi Electric or, you know, the Puna Buds or, you know, the stuff that the Hawaiians had the most beautiful pot in the world, you know, and they really did. And, you know, and it was hybridized and stuff, but it was just some of the best. Yeah. And very fruity. Yeah, yeah. Does that uh, bring you back, Mike? You can. Yeah, I'm not going to confirm or deny any of that. But uh, <laughs> mentioned my dad previously. I'll just note that he was a oh, he was a gen, he was a geneticist at the University of Hawaii in the 1970s. Oh. I, I observed some of the projects he and his graduate students were doing <laughs> in medical school, and uh, <laughs> there was a lot there was a lot of horticulture going on for some reason with a bunch of genetics graduate students. <laughs> So you've been really generous with your time, but I've got just a, two more questions for you. First, um, can you suggest two other books uh, related to this conversation that you'd, you'd recommend to the readers? I mean, you, we mentioned Al McCoy's uh, Politics yeah. of Heroin, which everybody should read. I yeah, mean, I think that. I think, book. yeah, The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia yeah. is a must read. Yeah. And then um, there's a beautiful book on hash that um, – Gosh, I can't Google to it uh, right now or get on. Uh, I can put it on, you know, comments or whatever that I read. But it was mostly just beautiful photographs. Uh, in terms of marijuana, I read a, a very interesting book called Weed Science. Weed that Science. I like. Yeah. Yeah, very much because it's it's the counterpoint to the Berenson book, Tell Your Children, which to me was a very shrill book, kind of trying to capture headlines about, oh, weed is horrible and it's going to cause psychosis and turn you into a Islamic terrorist. And I had the remarkable experience of, of debating Peter Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens' mm -hmm. brother in London about marijuana and he's thrown this pretty extreme stuff at me about from the Berenson book. And, um, and I found Weed Science by Godfrey Perlson, a very measured book by a real scientist about marijuana. And I do believe that some of these extreme concentrates, extreme you know, THC content, this and that. Yeah, this is not for everybody. And I'm not a 100% oh, let everybody smoke pot all the time, you know, anywhere, you know, anytime they want. And I think, well, the problem with the Berenson book was it, it cast everything in such extremes that, 
that weed science and, you know, Pearlson's book kind of brings it back to the center. And I think that's important that, yeah, people with pre-existing psychological conditions should not be, you know, eating ridiculously powerful edibles or mm-hmm. smoking ridiculously powerful pot. I mean, it's the difference between, you know, Coors Light and Everclear, that yeah, range yeah. exists within marijuana, and we need to acknowledge that. And so, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's actually a really thoughtful analogy. It's important. Um, did, did you, don't you also have a review in the current issue of the American Historical Review on a book on uh, cannabis? Yep. Yeah, I'm I'm banging them out. Uh, yeah, I'm reviewing books all the time. Yeah, that one was more about the trade and uh-huh. the culture, and it was a very good book. Um, uh, again, I don't have Google in front of me, and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but your, your review is in the is it the probably the the fall yeah, issue of 2020. But, but, uh, the weed science book, um, you know, Pearlson's book, I think is very, very important. I think um, it kind of recalibrates things in a, in a very intellectually honest way. Good. And I think that's important. Yeah. Well, finally, um, can you tell us what you're working on now? I mean, I, you told me a few yeah. things, but um, what are you working on now? What can we hope to see from you next? Because I know that you are very active. I have a autobiography of Hicks and Gracie, the great jujitsu fighter and teacher that our host, Michael Van, always humble, but a dangerous black belt. So someone with, uh, who has earned his stripes in the world of jujitsu that often crosses over with, with surfing, um, you know, knows all too well about. Um, so I'm finishing that. Uh, I finished the pilot for the Thai Stick TV series with Jose Padilla, the director and writer of Narcos. So, so that, that's great. Yeah. yeah. That's so that's moving, moving process. on the auction block. And then um, working on the screenplay of the Hickson book and then working on uh a similar autobiography of my mother the great joan tewksbury who wrote nashville and has had one of the most remarkable careers in hollywood you could ever imagine her first film was 1947 margaret o'brien's unfinished dance with uh danny Kay and others and then she was the original ostrich in mary martin's peter pan on broadway Wow. Wow. <laughs> that, those all sound fantastic. Um, yeah, so, never boring. yeah. Hey, Peter McGuire, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. No, Mike Van, thank you for your time. And, and let's get some questions and follow this up because, okay. you know, we've only just began. We didn't even get to surfing. I mean, I got. Yeah. Okay. So this has been a conversation with Dr. Peter McGuire about his most recent book, Tie Stick, Surfers, Scammers, and the Untold Story of the Marijuana Trade, out with Columbia University Press. Again, for more, more talk on surfing, politics, and drugs, check out my previous interviews with Scott Laterbim on Empire and Waves, A Political History of Surfing, and Chaz Smith on Surfing and Cocaine, A Sordid History of Surfing's Greatest Love Affair. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University. And this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.